0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2.
1: Today our scripture reading will be from Genesis 1, 1 through 25. And because this passage is lengthy, you can remain seated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and He he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and the trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their various kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Hey, good morning. You know, one of my uh, favorite novels is... Uh, kind of a science fiction classic called A Canticle for Leibowitz*, And it's really, it's a sprawling story that covers a couple thousand years, and and it's a post-apocalyptic story. So there's a nuclear war that happens in the 20th century, and then the story takes place over that and a long time after that. And the, the main place the story starts is in the 26th century. And what you have is because of the nuclear war, People that had survived it, were they turned against all the scientists and they turned against all the educated people and killed them. And basically, so you have just these remnants of people living that don't really have much knowledge of the past. And yet you have these these monks who have discovered relics, like little transistors and little notebooks and things like that. And now several centuries later, they have these relics that they're dedicated to and they preserve, they even are going to die to, to save and preserve, and they try to make sense of them. But because they don't know the original story, they don't know the, the story from which these pieces came, they're really confused by them. It's this very powerful story. And I was thinking about that this week as I was meditating on our text for today. Because what we have here in Genesis chapters 1 to 2 is what we can call an origin story. It's the story that is meant to help us make sense of the world. In fact, this, today we're starting a nine-week series just in, in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis that will lead us all the way up to Advent. And Pastor Kevin and I are both very excited about digging into this really foundational earth of the Bible giving us this ultimate origins story, and that's really what it is. In fact, every culture, every society, every organization, every people group has an origins story. So when you think about the United States, we have the stories we think of with George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and and Thomas Jefferson and the Revolutionary War. If you think about the ancient Romans, they had a really important story that kind of guided and shaped them called the Aeneid. If you think about uh Islam, they have a, the same starting point as the Jewish people, but then the, the story of their understanding of who they are takes the sharp turn with Ishmael. You've got the Marvel universe, right? This whole large multi, you know, multi-year. Produced cinematic universe that has all kinds of origin stories in it that are really important whether it's of Wolverine or Dr. Strange or Deadpool or Hulk or whatever these stories that help explain what's going on in this universe. Buddhism, Hinduism, the Mayan people, people from Myanmar, Chick-fil-A, Dick's Sporting Goods. If you walk into there you'll see it's kind of like an origin story on the side there. You've got Chicago Cubs. Every people, every society, every group has an origin story because we as humans, we need a frame. We need an understanding of where we came from and who we are. Sojourn has an origins story. Sojourn East is actually part of something that started before Sojourn East existed. Sojourn Church, a little over 20 years ago, yet had a talented group of young artistic punks, some of you here, uh, who loved Jesus and who wanted to do church in a different way, and so they had a lot of candles and they served Captain Crunch at the back of the service every Sunday. Don't get any ideas, we're not gonna start doing that. right? But in God's grace, these people, God blessed them and they grew and eventually just over 10 years ago, some of them moved out here and planted a new church and now we have this building and now this is part of my story, and it's part of your story. It helps me understand myself and it helps you understand yourself. And it turns out that the Bible also has an origin story. It's one that is bigger than the founding of any particular church or any particular country or organization or group. The Bible is telling us the origin story of how the world itself came into be and who was there. Now, you've probably heard this story, especially if you grew up around church or even just in a kind of Western civilization. You've probably heard the story, but I want to go back today and look at the first 25 verses of Genesis to help us understand the treasure trove of what's being said there. So I want to unpack this story. If you have a Bible, it'd be great for you to look along with on your phone or to open a Bible to, to follow along because I won't read all the verses, but refer to several of them. So Genesis 1.1 is probably the most famous sentence in the entirety of human history because the Bible is the most famous book in all of human history. And there it is right at the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God. And it's not a mere coincidence or accident that the Bible begins this way with God himself as the first subject of the first story. In fact, in the next 35 verses, that go into Genesis 1 and into chapter 22, God is going to appear 35 times. And over the course of the whole Bible, he will continue to appear all the way down to the book of Revelation when you when it talks about a new Genesis, a new creation that will be God is there as well. So God is the central character all throughout. And then the question is, okay, well, what do we learn about God from this origin story? And we learn a lot. We learn that he is the one, the singular God who created everything that exists, what the Bible calls the heavens and the earth. That means the farthest reaches of the skies and the planets and nebulae, all the way down to the smallest detail on earth. And we call this creation ex nihilo, which just means creation out of nothing. Because you see, The Bible says that God alone existed before there was time, before there was matter, before there was space, and that he is the singular source of everything that came into being. Now, maybe for you, that sounds like, well, that's old news. I've heard that all my life. What you need to understand is that this thousands of year old understanding of the world when you put it into its, its ancient context, this is crazy sounding. This is completely unexpected. Because you see, there were lots of other ancient peoples besides the Jewish people, Sumerians and Akkadians and Babylonians and Egyptians. And they also told origin stories. They told a story about how creation came into being, but they were very, very different. In fact, they were all the same. And this one is very different. And what the sameness was was that all the other stories that people have told about how the world came into being, even modern ones, all of the stories involve conflict. All of them involve some kind of semi-powerful God or forces who are fighting with each other, and that creates the world as we know it. But the biblical story is totally different than that. For example, there's a very famous story, the Enuma Elish epic, where you have this goddess Um, named Tiamat, which means basically the deep. It's this belligerent ocean goddess who battles against the god Anu. And then another deity, Marduk, comes in and kills Tiamat and splits her body like a shellfish, it says. And the split body creates heaven and earth. The Egyptians had a very similar one that evolved procreation, that heaven and earth is created as a result. But the biblical story is so different than every other story that has ever existed about how the world came to be. It says that there is a singular God who is personal and by his own self spoke and created all that came into being everything. In fact, when you read those other stories from ancient times, you feel like you're reading something that should be in a history textbook. It feels so dated. It feels so obviously mythological. But when you read the Genesis story, it has this sense of the universality of its claim. And then if you look at Genesis 1-2, it tells us that the world that God was, that he created from himself was at first formless and void, this great Hebrew poetic expression, tohu vavohu is the, is the phrase. So there's this watery abyss, and the spirit of God is sovereignly ruling over all of it. And then... In the midst of this chaos, God speaks, Yahi Or, let there be light. Or as most Hebrew scholars would say, he actually sung these words that God is singing out of his being creation into existence. And if you've read C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew, when he goes back in time and tells about the, the creation of Narnia, I think he picks up on this is what Hebrew scholars understand, that Aslan is walking around this, ca- this void and singing Narnia into existence. This, I think, is what the biblical story is telling us as well. And this Speaking or singing of all things into being sets off the ultimate origin story that the one singular sovereign God created everything over six days or six seasons or time periods. And people have been memorizing and reciting and studying this chapter of first chapter of Genesis for millennia. And I want to show you how it works very briefly. I've got a table here that we put together that helps explain that what people have long recognized is that the way the creation account is told is that it's in two parallel halves, days one, two, and three, and days four, five, and six. And what happens on in the first set of days is that there's the formation of all things out of God's singing. And then in the second half, you have the filling of all of this. So in day one... For example, God spoke or sang by his own power and light entered into the darkness and creates a separation. There's no sun or moon yet. That happens in day four. But what you have is what you see all throughout all the creation days is that there is a separation. There's a bringing of order out of chaos. There's an organization. Maybe you're a person who loves to organize things. Well, God is too. So you can feel free to be obsessive compulsive about your organization because God likes to organize things as well. And he brings order out of chaos. That's beauty. And that's what the, the, the creation of light and dark or the separating of the light and dark means here. It's probably best described as this is the creation of time itself. And then in day two, God continues to separate things, organize them to bring order out of chaos. And this is the creation of the separation of the heavens or the sky above and the watery abyss below. So if day one is the creation of time, day two is the creation of space or place itself. And then in day three, you have once again Order out of chaos. Let me read for you one nineteen and or one sorry chapter one verse nine and following. And God said, "Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear." And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered and the gathered together waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So he separates out land from water. That's the first part of what happens on day three. And the second part is things begin to grow. It's fertility. Things begin to reproduce. And so from the the colors that existed before of, of white and black and then blue of the sky, now we begin to see a million shades of green as things begin to grow on the land. So that's the the forming of the world by God's sovereign voice. And then in days four, five, and six, he fills. So the those first three days establish the form of place and time and heaven and earth. Now he begins to fill them. So in day four, we're told that God gives two signs, two bodies in the heavens. One, the sun. And the other is the moon. Let me just read a couple of these verses for you here. Again, 1:14, it says, "And God said, "Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth." And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, that's what we'd call the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, what we'd call the moon. And he also made the stars and God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. We're told, you see, why God created the sun and the moon, not to be served by humans, which humans have done for thousands of years to serve the sun and the moon, to worship them, but to serve us. We who are time-bound creatures are given signs in the sky so that we can make sense of the day and the night and the seasons and different stages of our lives. And then day five, again, a parallel to the sea and the sky, he begins to fill. He fills the oceans and he fills the skies with birds and every kind of fish and sea creatures, in fact, Monsters and monsters of the deep and whales. In fact, in most creation accounts, besides the biblical one, the, the sea monsters are at enmity again with the other gods. But the way the Bible describes it, God created and blesses and blesses the craziest sea creatures in the depths of the ocean. Job describes God playing with them like a toy with a finger and loving them and creating all the most you know, powerful things you could imagine in the ocean. And then finally, day six, same parallel. You had the creation of dry land. And now in the same kind of twofold way, he creates two things. He creates all the domestic quadrupeds, all the legless crawling creatures, every wild and living thing. And then we'll see in a couple of weeks, ultimately humanity. This is the picture. It's the picture of the one God creating all things from himself. And did you notice the repeated note that's in them? That at every point it says, and God saw that it was good. 110. God saw that it was good, 112, and God saw that it was good, 118, and God saw that it was good, 121, and God saw that it was good, 125, and God saw that it was good. And then at the end of this, just past our text for today, in 131, it says, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so whatever other understanding ancient people or modern people might have about the world, what the true origin story of the world says. And what we learn is that, this, that everything that the singular God made is good and beautiful. In other words, the world is not fundamentally a place of warring powers. The world is not a place of evil and good. that are equals that are fighting each other, a yin and yang. The world is not that some parts of creation are good and some parts of creation are bad. The Bible says that the one and true and personal God sung all this into existence and it is all good because it reflects him and he is all good. There is no darkness in him at all. Now, a couple of chapters later, we'll find out why it is then that there is suffering and disappointment and death in the world. But what we have to start with is this fundamental understanding that creation to its core is good because it comes from the good God. Okay, so you may say, fine, it's interesting. I've heard all that in Sunday school. What am I really supposed to do with this? I mean, what is? how do you live life in light of that? Okay, it's fine. You might Is this just an interesting description? I mean, I've got cancers and taxes and travel baseball club schedules and disappointments and hurts and wounds. Well, today, as we begin this nine-week series, just looking at our ultimate story, instead of giving you a bunch of application, I want to just give you two declarations that I think this text is giving us as a call, as an invitation to respond. So two declarations that I think are an invitation to respond. So here's the first declaration, and simply is this, this is our God. First, I want to invite you to consider what the Bible is saying, that this is our God. Friends, this teaching about how the world came to be be, is not just meant to kind of give us abstract ideas It's not just for Sunday school. It's not giving us data to weigh into scientific debates. The whole story of the world, the story of this whole world is meant to direct us to look around and recognize that everything that we see has come from the one true God. So this means snowy mountain peaks that are 27,000, 28,000, 29,000 feet high, all the way down to lush green valleys where every square inch is covered with a 1,000 colors of green vegetation. Vast oceans full of millions of marlins and groupers and tuna swimming together in, in joyful patterns, Schools of hammerhead sharks and pufferfish, those weird bottom of the sea anglerfish. Do you think that God really created that? Yes, He did. The, the, you first saw in Nemo, you remember when we all first learned about the anglerfish? Those phosphorus plankton that you can swim with, as I have in the warm January ocean of New Zealand, that float around you happily. Seas of golden flowing. Wheat, with perfectly symmetrical heads of grain that joyfully sway as the wind blows across the fields of Nebraska. 10, 11, 12 feet tall, row after row of corn, Illinois corn, where each individual cob that has thousands of weight, the ability to produce thousands of other plants is wrapped individually in their own green vegetative pocket. Porcupines, kangaroos, giraffes, baby rhinoceroses, friendly chimpanzees, freaky looking orangutans, zebras. You have to know God has a sense of humor when you see a zebra. It's like the joke horse, right? Lynxes, stealthy panthers, ostriches, Screeching eagles, lazy eyed cows. Some cows up in Scotland have hair so long they look like hippies. Herds of gazelle. Nuclear fusion, DNA helixes that contain the blueprint of every living thing, thunderstorms, Saturn's rings, asteroids, deserts where the wind blows over and creates these pieces of art, elaborate ant colonies, rabbit warrens, peacocks, waterfalls, exploding stars that you can see with the Hubble telescope. Did you see the sunrise this morning? You're 11 o'clock hour people, you weren't up. But there was a great sunrise. I was up and I saw it. Oranges and pinks and purples. Butterflies, sequoias scraping the sky, oak trees, orchids. Have you looked at a flame recently? And to see how it dances with multiple colors? How water feels on the skin. On a hot day, and how it quenches our thirst snowflakes, leaves, fractals, rivers, thousands of starlings and blackbirds flying in the formation. Have you seen that in the sky? Like, what are they doing? It looks like they're having a great time. And how do they do that? Cracks in the earth where the molten, hot, liquid rock comes up and creates a fireworks display for you and and then goes into the ocean and forms new land. Chemical reactions, how heat and cold transfer, how plants always grow up toward the sun and how the moon tugs on the ocean and creates waves that are simultaneously predictable and never the same. Crickets that provide the perfect soundtrack for a summer evening on your deck. Dolphins that will chase behind your boat and jump back and forth, and if a human's in trouble, we'll surround them and protect them. Cicadas that say, we're going to take a 17-year-old nap, we'll be back. (laughs) Companion animals, like dogs and cats, that love us and we love them. All of this is saying, behold your God this is the point. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes it, describing God as an emperor. He says, in order that we finite beings may apprehend the emperor, he translates his glory into multiple forms, into stars, wood, waters, beasts, and the bodies of men. It's like all that God's got a Google translator and he's trying to communicate to us and so he translates it through his amazing glory that we can't even comprehend because we're so limited. So he translates and it splinters off in a million, million beautiful, creative, diverse things. So, friends, look up, look around, turn on Blue Planet or National Geographic, take a slow walk in your neighborhood and worship. Because this is the point of this origin story. This is not the function of multiple warring forces or impersonal things. This is a personal God who's being reflected in all the beauty of what you see. And can I ask you to to change something in your vocabulary? Instead of referring to all of around you as nature, refer to it what it is, creation. We've lost a lot when we start looking around the world and referring to it as nature, because that makes it sound like it's impersonal and that it came of itself and it sustains itself. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this is creation. It is the function of God himself creating. It's infinitely better to call it that. In fact, the book of Romans tells us that every single human, because we're part of the creation of selves, we have this innate sense. And you know it that all this goodness and gloriousness in creation means there is a creator. We can suppress it. We can try to ignore it. We can try to explain it away as random chance. We can try to worship the sun and moon, as many humans have, or we can recognize that what Genesis one is telling us is what we know in every cell of our bodies, there is a creator who is beautiful and good. And you see, you don't, you don't have to be one of these people, which I like a lot, who are into nature. For some of you, you're totally into nature or maybe creation, we can call it. Some of you, when you go outside, you just itch, right? I'm not talking about just the people who are into creation or into nature. If you're, some people are going to be, but every Christian needs to be into creation. That is recognizing the beauty and goodness that it reflects God himself. That God is exploding out with goodness and love. I love that Disney's Pocahontas paints with all the colors of the wind. And have you not seen the wolf cry at the blue corn moon? Great images. I love Broadway musicals anyways, but I, I love that. And she, she talks about the sun sweet berries of the earth. Those are great words and great images. Now, our problem is that for many of us would understand as Christians that what Native Americans would understand, they would identify the creation with God himself. That's what's called pantheism. And that's not helpful. It's not what the true story of the Bible says. However, we must be careful that we don't fail to rejoice just as much in creation as as a pantheist would. Because we understand the true story that all of this is emanating from God himself. It's not the same thing as God, but it's his glory translated. So we should be people who are just as much into every single aspect of creation as any other religion would be. So rediscover awe, rediscover enchantment, rediscover the childlike faith of recognizing the creativity of God all around us. This is what Genesis is about. It's not a call to arms about secular scientific theories or something. It is an invitation to see God as he truly is. The Christian musician, Andrew Peterson, has a stunning song that I think I've referred to before in a sermon that speaks beautifully to to the sense of the world that we have and the effect it has on us. It's called, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? And he's talking about in the midst of all the brokenness of the world, We still feel something is is wrong and there's something right. Here's some of the lyrics from it. He says, When you see the morning sun burning through a silver mist, don't you want to thank someone? Sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here. The thunder rolls and the baby sighs and the rain comes down. And when you see the spring has come and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? Humans, behold your God. This is the first and primary response we should have to Genesis 1, is that this is God, and he's calling us to see him. And that leads to the second declaration I want to give you. Not only this is our God, but this is our story. So I started by talking about origin stories, and that, again, origin stories matter because... That's where we get our identity. That's where we get our sense of self, how we fit into the world, who we are, why we can get up every morning. The story that we understand ourselves profoundly shapes who we are. Every one of you has a family of origin story that is shaping you to this day, whether you realize it or not. Maybe you were part of a a family that was really into music and really valued that. So that's part of your story and your identity. Maybe you're a family who's really into sports or really into nature or creation. Maybe you're a family that just loved to really work hard with their hands. Even if you end up the opposite of your family of origins because you're sort of rebelling or reacting against that, Always remember the progressive insurance commercials. Sooner or later, you will end up something like your parents, right? It's because we're all so profoundly shaped by our origin story. And then you individually, you had to figure out how to fit into that story, whether you're the firstborn or a middle child or the baby of the family like me. All of that story shaped you fundamentally, fundamentally. That's how you understand who you are. It's how you show up and inhabit the world. And what the Bible is telling us is that from page one, who we are, and we'll get back to this more when we talk about the creation of humanity, but who we are is that we fit into a creation that is made by a singular personal God who created everything and it is good. Remember what I told you about this post-apocalyptic story, a a canticle for Leibowitz. There's chaos, there's confusion, there's misdirected devotion towards these artifacts and relics because the people didn't know the true story of where these things came from. So too, we can look around the world and misunderstand what our real story is that we are creatures of God. We could also think of the, the classic Matrix films, right? Where humans are living this frustrating life and it turns out they're really just batteries plugged in uh, and, and being kept uh, asleep and drugged. It's not real life. Well, so too with us, brothers and sisters and all fellow creatures. So many of our frustrations and disappointments And anger and confusion, I think comes from the fact that we are often trying to live our lives without understanding the story of which we are a part. 33 years ago tomorrow, September 20th, 1988, was the day that I became a Christian as a young man. The day where I went from confusion And uncertainty about who I was and how to inhabit the world and how to live. That, from that to having my eyes be opened to really what I understand now a different story, a different understanding of who I was and what my background was and and where I was going. And that different story transformed me. Of course, it didn't fix, you know, that day didn't fix all my hurts or problems or wounds. But over the last 33 years, by the grace of God, and I know this is your story too for many of you, I'm being reshaped constantly to re-understand myself by re-understanding the true story of who God is and what he's doing in the world. And I have found that the more that I lean into and embrace the story of Scripture rather than, as I talked about last week, rather than finding my story be in the American dream or something else, as I lean into and understand that God is giving me the true story of the world from Genesis all the way through Revelation, as I lean into that, my life makes more sense. And that makes sense, right? Because if you're trying to use a hammer to tighten a screw, or trying to treat a heart attack with a Band-Aid, or trying to drive a car blindfolded. It will only make a mess of things. And some of you here today are frustrated with your lives. Some of you, it's because you haven't yet understood the true story of who you are as a creature and how God has set you into the world that he has created. But God today is inviting you and inviting me to taste and see anew maybe for the first time maybe for the 1800th time that there is a singular personal creator and sustainer of life who's inviting you into understanding yourself as part of the creation of his translated gl- glory and of course genesis isn't where the story ends <laughs> the most if genesis 1 isn't shocking enough if you trace the story of the Bible through, what you find is that it eventually says that God, the triune God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, who created all things by his singing voice was willing finally at a time in human history to actually become a human. To actually take on the flesh that he created for the most beautiful part of his creation, humanity, that he might reverse the curse and begin a new creation in the world. And as we come near the end of our service, this is what we are celebrating, what we're remembering when we think about these physical created elements of bread, that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took and he broke. And he gave it to his disciples, and they tasted it in their mouths. And he took wine, the fruit of the grape, and they tasted it in their physical mouths. And these became everlasting physical symbols to remind us that we're created beings who are in need of redemption, of purchasing, of healing, that we get through the one singular God who in the Son became a human. And so I'm going to pray. I'd encourage you, if you're a Christian, partake of these elements, rejoicing in the the physicality of the world that God has made and its sacredness. If you're not a Christian, I invite you. I would love to talk to you about your story and the story of God. I'm going to pray and the musicians will come forward and then we will sing to him. So let me pray for us. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.